This week takes us to Farwell, Texas, where a serial killer, child rapist, and family annihilator is finally brought to justice. This is episode 61 of Texas 1031. Hey everyone, this is Hannah. This is Texas 1031, and this is a Texas true crime podcast. Today I'm going to be telling you about the 13 murders committed by George Hassel. So picture it, Farwell, Texas, the early 1900s. So another oldie. Firstly, I wanted to mention that there is limited information regarding George and his past since I'm having to search back into the late 1800s and early 1900s. So this may be a shorter episode since most of the information I could find was strictly on the murders themselves and not many details in between, if that makes sense. But regardless, this is a very underrated and fucked up case. So let's get into it. George Hassel grew up in the small town of Smithville, Texas. He was born in July of 1888 and was the baby of the family with seven older siblings. From the get-go, George gained a reputation for being wild and rebellious. While in his teens, George allegedly got a woman pregnant and abandoned her. So that's nice. She kind of honestly lucked out after we find out what happens. Not long after this, George would join the Merchant Marines. I kind of went on a semi-deep dive to figure out what the fuck this was. According to the internet, uh, the Merchant Marines is a part of the maritime trade industry concerned with transporting cargo and sometimes passengers from place to place via water routes. It is also known as the commercial shipping industry. So that seems pretty simple. Um, Merchant mariners operate ships and other water vessels on domestic and international waters. So there's that. I don't know if that was what the organization did in the early 1900s, but whatever. So now you know. George's loyalty to the Merchant Marines was short-lived after he abandoned his post and essentially went AWOL, or whatever the Merchant Marines equivalent is. George hopped from one place to another and one woman to another for some time. He would be married and divorced several times, but around 1916 or 1917, he found himself in Whittier, California, and in love, I guess, with a woman named Marie Vogel. While living in Whittier, George casually went under the assumed name of G.G. Baker, uh, probably because he was on the run from the military police, and he resided in a house at what is now 7242 South Whittier Avenue, where a four-unit apartment building currently occupies the lot. George lived in Whittier with Marie and her three adopted children, eight, three, and one, while working for the Southern Pacific Railroad and later the Associated Pipeline Company. Suddenly, without warning, Marie would take the children and move over six hours away to San Francisco. So now in his mid-30s and with really no reason to stay behind in California, George decided to move home back to Texas to be with one of his brothers. I never saw the location or town where his brother lived listed in any article. So somewhere in rural Texas, which could really be anywhere, especially during that time period. But nonetheless, George moves home back to small town Texas. Okay. 
Unfortunately, tragedy struck yet again soon after George moved and began working with his brother. Around 1924, while George and his brother were working the fields at his brother's ranch, George's brother was kicked in the head by a mule and died instantly. This left Susan Ferguson, the wife of George's brother, now widowed with seven children to care for. George played the classic, I guess like biblical card, if you will, and married Susan and assumed the role of husband and father to she and her children. Around six months after the couple had been married, Susan, or Susie, as she was actually called, gave birth to a little boy they named Samuel. So I guess they were fucking before they were married, those dirty birdies. So soon after the birth of baby Samuel, the very big family moved to Farwell, Texas, about 100 miles south of Amarillo, and rented a farm. They made an odd pair. George was loud, extroverted, and a heavy drinker, while Susie was far more reserved and dedicated to her religion and her children. But they seemed to get along well enough. I also feel like Susie was like, well... It's the early 1920s. I've got a shit ton of kids to feed and care for. So marrying George, you know, isn't the worst idea ever. It probably, you know, wasn't ideal. But if you think about it, nothing in rural Texas in the early 1900s was ideal. So can't really blame her for going with the flow. In early December 1926, two years after George's brother's death and around 10 years after his first family in Whittier, California, abandoned him. Susie and her children would also disappear. Within the first or second week of December, George invited anyone in the area to his farm for essentially an estate sale. Numerous residents of the small town of Farwell descended on the Hassel farm just outside of town. George was selling off most of his and his family's things so that he could raise money to follow his wife, Susie, and their eight children to Blair, Oklahoma. Or at least that's the story he told them. Many attendees were interested in more than just bargain farm equipment and used clothes. The Hassel's friends and neighbors were quite suspicious about how quickly Susie and the kids had left. She hadn't mentioned the move to anyone or even said goodbye. So what was really going on? At this makeshift auction, the Hassel's neighbors found more to be suspicious about. One family's wagon wheel sank in the soft dirt as if the ground had been recently disturbed. In addition, there was a new crudely built root cellar against one wall of the house, which struck most as odd and curious since they knew George was planning on moving to Oklahoma soon, so why would he feel the need to build a new root cellar? Inside the house, bidders found trunks and suitcases full of women's and children's clothes. They also found Susie's religious books and pamphlets, which she never would have gotten rid of. The sale netted George around $3,500. I guess this is kind of like the 1920s Dateline episode where the husband is throwing away the wife's clothes and selling her car and taking out life insurance policies and all the classic stuff right after the wife has, you know, just gone missing, you know? Um... And just for fun, I looked up what the conversion rate would be if you took the $3,500 from 1926 and what it would be today. So $3,500 in 1926 is almost equivalent to $59,000 today. Anyways, uh, soon after George sold off his family's things and the lease was up on the farm, the property owner rented the farm out to new tenants. 
However, George told the owner and the new renters that he needed to clean up one of the rooms before he could fully move out. This cleanup would actually end up taking several days for George to complete, so he stacked up the remainder of his belongings and suitcases he was planning on taking to Oklahoma and began to clean the room that needed some last-minute fixing up. George would spend his days sweeping and scrubbing and spend his nights hanging out with the new tenants. However, after dinner one night, George told the new tenants he wasn't feeling well and was going to head to bed early. But just minutes after he had gone into the bedroom to lay down, he called out to the tenants begging them to get a doctor and the sheriff headed to the ranch. Once the two men had arrived, they made their way through the house where they found George in his bed. George hadn't just gone to bed with an upset stomach or a headache. Now he wasn't feeling well due to the three self-inflicted stab wounds to his chest and abdomen. George would be rushed to the nearest hospital and managed to survive his injuries. Doctors and nurses recall that he was quite relaxed and cheerful, even making jokes with the staff as they stitched him up. I mean, that could be due to pain medication or just him being a complete psychopath. I don't know. Unfortunately for George, however, is that the authorities attempted to send a telegram to Susie to tell her that George had been injured and hospitalized, but they soon discovered that there was no Susie Hassel or Susie Ferguson in Blair, Oklahoma. This revelation, combined with the suspicious disappearance of Susie and the children, led the sheriff's office to search Hassel's former home. Because who needs a search warrant, right? Uh, unsurprisingly, when they searched the room George had been allegedly cleaning for the past few days, investigators immediately saw blood spatter on the walls behind the boxes and the suitcases George had set aside. This obviously set off alarm bells for everyone searching around the house, and this discovery shifts their attention on the freshly dug root cellar beside the house. The team of deputies removed the wooden planks and began digging. There inside, they uncovered the remains of Susie and her children. Their bodies had been carefully arranged in a mass grave, wrapped in blankets and still in their nightclothes. Beneath Susie's body lay an axe. It had been three weeks since George claimed they had left for Oklahoma. So, it's going to smell great. George, now released from the hospital but still weak, uh, immediately confessed, saying, I did it, I did it. During his confession, George claimed that on December 5th, 1926, Susie and he began to argue over the fact that George raped and impregnated Susie's 13-year-old daughter, Maudie, who, remember, was also his niece and stepdaughter, putting all those, you know, points together, okay? Frustrated, George went to the property's barn and got drunk on whiskey for a while. Normal reaction. After which, he said he picked up a ball-peen hammer, where it had come from, he, he didn't know, and he hit Susie in the face with it twice. He then strangled her, and when that didn't finish her off, he wrapped a stocking around her neck, and finally, he hit her in the head with an axe. So essentially, he hit her in the face with, an, with a hammer. He strangled her and with his hands and then wrapped a stocking around her neck and strangled her. And then he hit her in the head with an axe. She wasn't going down easy and it got really gross. So realizing what he had done, George said, quote, I had best go on and kill the whole outfit, end quote. 
The whole outfit, meaning his entire family. Uh, He began strangling the children with stockings, starting with the youngest, his own son, Samuel, who wasn't quite two years old. Next was Nanny Martha, who was four, then Johnny, who was six, then David, who was seven. Once George got to 11-year-old Russell, the boy woke up and actually put up a fight. The scuffle woke up 15-year-old Virgil, who also fought George. At one point, Virgil was able to hit George several times with a brick. Who just has a fucking brick laying around in your room, but okay. But George was able to get his shotgun and shoot Virgil with it. Russell almost escaped, but George caught him and attempted to strangle him to death. When Russell continued gasping for air, George hit him in the head with the axe. Lastly, he strangled 13-year-old Maudie, killing her and her alleged unborn child. Once George had strangled, shot, or axed everyone, he began digging their mass grave next to the house in the root cellar and waited for 21-year-old Alton to return from his job in Clovis, New Mexico. Susie's oldest daughter, 24-year-old Nora, was luckily living in California with her husband at the time. Although she had planned to return for the holidays, she had been unexpectedly delayed, thank God. Four days later, when Alton returned home, George told him that the rest of the family had left to visit a relative. He fixed Alton dinner and the two stayed up playing cards. Once Alton was asleep, George snuck into his room, put the shotgun barrel against his skull, and pulled the trigger, splattering blood all over the wall. During his questioning, George decided he had even more to confess. He told authorities about another crime a decade earlier in California where he'd killed his former wife and her three adopted children. I bet y'all saw that one coming. However, despite the vague confession, George refused to give any further details. The Palmer County, Texas authorities contacted the California authorities, but they didn't know of any cases matching that description. Luckily, since the Hassel family murders had garnered nationwide attention, In Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, a woman named Gertrude Hoffman was reading the sordid story in her local paper. Gertrude Hoffman was none other than Marie Vogel's sister. The name George Hassel had seemed familiar to her, and when she saw his picture in the paper, she remembered who he was. Gertrude recognized him because she had visited them at their farm in Whittier. But not long after her visit, Marie went missing. The only word Gertrude got about her sister was from George, saying that Marie had taken the children and moved to Australia. So, switching it up. After seeing George's picture in the paper, Gertrude contacted the Texas authorities immediately. They then contacted the Whittier police, who were able to track the family down using George's work records. Interviews with their former neighbors revealed that indeed Marie and the three kids had suddenly gone missing 10 years earlier and that George had told them they had moved to San Francisco. The night after they went missing, the neighbors said they saw George carrying a heavy trunk into the garage and later several other small bundles. They said they saw him hauling out dirt from the garage for three days and that they smelled the fumes of burning rags coming from his kitchen. When George was confronted with these facts, he once again confessed. He told police that Marie had believed in spiritualism and had had visions of treasure buried under their garage. He said she made him dig up the floor to look for the treasure. 
He said that like with Susie, he had just suddenly lost his temper with her and hit her over the head with a club, then choked her to death, first with his hands and then with a rope. He then killed the three children, ages eight, three, and one, the same way. He confessed to burying them in the treasure hole, a job that took him three days. Since the house had long since been demolished, he drew them a map of the property indicating where he had buried them. Indeed, following his map, police found the remains of a woman and three children. In a gruesome similarity to the Hassels, their skulls were crushed, and each still had a rope around their neck. Almost everyone in Farwell volunteered to help dig graves for Susie and the children, and at the graveside service, the district attorney spoke, urging the crowd not to resort to violence. But there was a lot of anger among the good people of Farwell. George had to be moved around different area jails under the cover of darkness for his own protection. True to his word, once he had recovered his strength, you know, from his self-inflicted stab wounds, George gave the detailed confession to the authorities that I already went over, but later to a reporter for the Abilene Morning News, he explained more about himself, which I'm sure he enjoyed very much. George told the newspaper how he had lived a life of chaos from the beginning. His father was a violent abuser, and when George was only 13, his father had beaten his mother to death. George ran away after that and became a drifter. He couldn't seem to hold down a job, usually because he kept stealing and ripping off his employers or customers. He enlisted in the army, then deserted to join the Navy under an assumed name before getting caught and serving time in a military prison, not to mention his stint in the Merchant Marines. Lastly, he told the newspaper that he also went through a string of failed marriages. Uh, Susie was his fifth wife. I mean, to be fair, failed marriages meaning only three because you kind of killed the other two. But anyway, no one cares about you, George. Sorry, not sorry. On January 26th, 1927, George Hassel's trial began. This is literally so fast. Okay, think about this. He confessed to killing 13 people at the beginning of December 1926. And then he was sent to trial a month and a half later. If that were to happen today, it would take years before he would be sent to trial. The catch is, although he had confessed to killing all 13 people, okay, this is, this is the kicker. He was only indicted for the murder of Alton. That is also some 1920s shit. I, I, don't, really, I don't really get it, but that was a long time ago. Can't really do anything about it now. Though Hassel pled guilty and even requested the death penalty, the jury had to decide on his mental state. So he was examined by several psychiatric experts who declared him a sociopath. But that was not enough to qualify him for an insanity defense. And in the end, the jury only took 30 minutes to find him guilty and then two hours to determine his sentence, death by electrocution. When the judge handed down the sentence, George said, thank you, your honor. California, hearing that he was to be put to death in Texas, declined to try him for the murders he committed there. While in prison, he was described as a model prisoner, always cheerful and cracking jokes. He wove doilies as gifts to visitors, fellow inmates, and even the members of the jury who had sent him to death row. He said his time in prison had been the best time of his life. When asked why he had killed the victims, he said he didn't know. He pointed to his head and said, something was wrong up here. George was indifferent to the verdict and awaited the outcome of his appeal in prison in Huntsville, where he declared that the electric chair held no more fear for him than a barber chair. 
He also regaled his fellow inmates with detailed descriptions of his crimes. On February 10, 1928, George was sent to the electric chair in the Texas State Penitentiary at Huntsville. Again, that was fast as fuck. Uh, He spent a little over a year in prison after his trial and was executed. They didn't waste any fucking time. In his last shitbag statement, George Hassel declared, quote, I would like to announce to the world that I am prepared to meet my God. I have made my confession to God and man. Man does not understand at all, but God does. End quote. It took three jolts to kill him. He was finally declared dead at 1229 a.m. His remains were interred in the Huntsville Prison Cemetery. And that is the murder of Marie Vogel and her three children, as well as Susan, Alton, Russell, Virgil, Maudie, Johnny, David, Nanny Martha, and Samuel. Fuck you, George Hassel. Now on to questions and theories. So, number one. Does anyone else think he killed his brother? Um, He was the only one out in the field with him that afternoon when he died. And I mean, if the brother supposedly died from a kick to the head by a mule, then that's kind of in line with George's MO of bashing people in their heads. So who's to say he didn't just take a farm tool to his head and killed him and then blamed it on a mule? He's plenty capable, as we know. Okay, question number two. He stabbed himself three times in the chest and stomach. Was this to buy himself some time or was this like a real attempt at killing himself? Or was this a sympathy stunt? You know, like um, like we can't be mad at him or put him in prison if he's all cut up kind of thing. He seemed too narcissistic and full of himself to commit suicide, but that's just me. Plus, being in prison being put to death was as good a time as any to kill yourself if that really was his plan and he didn't. He claimed he loved it in prison. So, so I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't really have more questions or theories besides those two. But if you have questions or theories, please email me or reach out to me on social media. I know it was a short one and definitely a lesser known one, but still pretty brutal nonetheless. Um, but yeah, I hope y'all enjoyed this episode. I will be back with more Texas true crime. And if anyone's listening, happy Halloween.